crazy. Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humblebrags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello, and welcome to episode two of Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. I'm Matt Georges, and in this episode, I'm talking to Nicole Shamir, an ex-work colleague and friend who now lives somewhere very hot and sunny, which, as you'll hear, caused a little bit of a problem. The original idea was to record her side of the conversation on her laptop, but it had a really noisy fan sort of chugging away in the background, trying to keep it cool. So we switched to her mobile and a Zoom recording. It's not too bad, but I hope you'll forgive the old gremlin in the audio quality. We talk a bit about the Environment Agency, which is the environmental regulator for England and is where we met. There's also a little bit of economics nerdery going on, but I've tried to keep it brief and hopefully interesting. Mostly, though, you'll be hearing about what it's like to up sticks from London and head off to an island, a five-day boat journey from the nearest port. Time for another taste of Serendipity Soup. Yeah, I'm Nicole Shamir. I'm the chief economist in St Helena, which is one of the most remote islands in the world, a British overseas territory in the South Atlantic. I'm, I believe, the first female chief economist here and one of only a handful in this very small populated 4,500 person strong island. So here it is about three degrees. It's been dark for some time. It's spattering rain and sleet. What's it like where you are? It's summer at the moment and it is about 28 degrees during the day. We have had a bit of rain recently, but mostly it's hot and sunny. I do have a little bit of a tan going on. That is uh, something that makes me jealous, frankly. So 2017 was when the first flight started, but you moved over there before then, didn't you? So what was your journey like when you came over? Yeah, so I flew from London to Cape Town, which took about 11 hours. I then Mm. went one overnight stay. And the next day I got on a ship called the RMS St. Helena, the Royal Mail ship, one of the last in the world at the time. And it took five days, which is, I mean, sounds really romantic. My issue, I get quite seasick. So it's quite an interesting time for me. It was a wonderful journey because the internet was almost non-existent and I just had to go completely off grid for five days, which is kind of shocking if you've left your family and your friends and at the time my fiancé behind and you're doing this journey by yourself. And the only choice you have is to make friends with the people you're on the ship with. So I made some really good friends there who, in the most part, I'm still friends with now, which is almost five years later. It sounds a bit like when you start at university maybe and you've got to be really careful not to make friends with the wrong person 
because you're then stuck with that person that you just made friends with because they were the nearest person to you when you got on the boat, as it were. But it sounds like you were okay on that. <laughs> yeah, and actually it was kind of strange because a friend that I made on the ship was from Kingsbury, which is in northwest London. And that was very close to the area where I grew up in. Her mum knew my friend's mum and so on. But this happens a lot actually on the island. There is so many people that you know and through somebody and I really do believe in the six degrees of separation. It's absolutely true. I mean, yeah, 4,500 people. You really wouldn't expect somewhere where you'd meet somebody literally on the boat on the way out. It's incredible. Last year, a very good friend of mine, which we went to school with, but she lives in Sydney. She messaged me and she said, oh, my cousin's best friend is coming out to St. Helena. What's the name? And as I was waiting for her to text me back, I called over to my husband. Reese, who are you picking up from the airport today? And we said, <laughs> his name's Sparks. And the text message just come through. She said, oh, it was Emma Sparks. Of course, we're going to pick up from the airport the exact person you were talking about. This podcast is about serendipity. It's about how people get where they're going and why they've got there and so on. So if we go back to right from the start, you studied economics at university. But even before that, what were you interested in when you were growing up? I did an A-level in business studies and found that I turned my hand to it quite well. And one of the modules I had, that made me think, oh, maybe I should do something that I'm good at. But in saying that, I did actually go to university to do business studies. I had these grand visions that I'd be this lady who was wearing a suit and would be, I don't know, all sorts of important. I just saw myself as someone who worked in business. But that would have been a first for my family. My dad was a carpenter. My mum worked at a school. And I was the first in my family who'd been to university. So actually, it wasn't kind of a given that that would necessarily be the route that I would take. And I went to university to do business studies. And I did this fantastic course in Manchester where they said, OK, well, fair enough, you've gone in to do business studies but actually in the first year we're going to make you do all sorts of things so I did the accountancy modules and the economics modules that I had to do for business studies they also had me do sociology politics economic history and I realized that I hated the accountancy and I love the economics and I love the economic history and so yeah I ended up with a degree in that but that's not to say I wanted to be an economist I think it took a little while after that but that's okay. Yeah, it's quite an unusual degree you did. So you did economics and economic and social history. And one of the criticisms of economics tends to be that it's a bit divorced from history and from society. You know, it's it's abstract, it's mathematical, but it's, uh, it's kind of divorced from reality to a large extent and certainly divorced from history. So was it the economic history that, that you found particularly interesting or was it some as- other aspect? Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, The macroeconomics and the microeconomics just didn't interest me at all. It was divorced from reality. And bits that did interest me were things like writings about the classical economists. So, for example, I had to read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and do presentations on it as part of one module. And I absolutely loved that. He wrote, he was obviously the grandfather of economics, but he wrote in such a simple way and explained, for example, where money came from in in a way that kind of made sense. And I think 
my understanding of economics is it's basically common sense. It's a way to organise thoughts and that really appealed to me. There were other modules as well that were closer to reality, things like competition, mergers and monopolies I actually liked. And ironically, I don't do anything about that in my current job. And there were modules about globalisation and essentially how the world came to be because people decided to move for economic betterment or because we required infrastructure in certain places. And so by doing that entire study, I was able to understand life a lot better and not just because of macro and microeconomics. I really hear you on that. As you know, you were a bit of an inspiration to become an economist. And part of it was that I was just fed up hearing a load of crap from economists, but not having the intellectual tools to push back on it. I I seem to remember you were quite frustrated with some of the economics. Yeah, and there's this new, well, fairly new branch, I guess new when we're talking decades, but um, called Behavioural Economics. The book called Nudge has got very popular as a result of it. But I'd been hearing things like, oh, you, you just you just put the price up and then and then people buy less. Um, when actually there's a lot more to it. You don't just put the price up of water and people buy less. Mostly people carry on the habits as usual. You just end up making their bills higher. I guess I didn't believe a lot of it. I felt that if you wanted to make change, you had to change people's behaviour. And actually that's fit into a lot of work that I'm doing in St Helena. We, for example, have increased the sugar tax that was here prior to, I think, the UK bringing one in. So we had one here on fizzy drinks, but that didn't really do anything to people's behaviour. And when we went along and increased it and also put the same sugar tax on biscuits and chewing gum and ice cream and things like that, we actually had the dietitians and the health promoters who were doing a lot of work about healthy eating and changing your behaviours and being fitter and walking and parking your car further away and all those kind of things. And the reason that policy worked for health was only partly because of the economics. And to be fair, they, the health promoter had said, we wouldn't have been able to do this without this tax. It kind of scared people into changing. But I don't think we could have done it without their behavioural messages, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. But just going back to you were at university and you said you weren't really sure about economics even then, despite the fact that you'd done a degree in it. And was I right? Where did you think you were heading when you left university? I mean, because I had this dual degree, this this economic side and then the economic and social history side, all my colleagues who were doing economics already had signed up to banks on graduate schemes. And all my colleagues doing economic history in one way or another were taking a gap year and going traveling and I felt like I was neither those groups elements of me were in both sides but I was neither of them perfectly so I basically started working in the town that my mum lived in and I worked for social services at the time it was called just doing some admin work and just seeing where I would go to not really knowing what I wanted to do but knowing that I didn't want to work in a position where I'd be making rich people richer that just wasn't for me so I wasn't interested in the banks and I suppose that the admin job I was doing was pretty easy so 
there was a job that came up at the environment agency that was personal assistant job which was slightly harder than the admin job I had and I went for it and I was just lucky that I was in the right place at the right time because the manager I was working for the area manager he had done an MBA he hired me despite having no PA experience but because he liked the sound of me he liked that I had an economics degree he thought I could do something in the organization and Every week he read The Economist and he circled bits for me and he handed it to me after he was done. And that was really what made me realise that economics wasn't just the stuff that I'd learned at university. It was very applied. That was really how I got back into the groove of being interested in economics in the workplace. Right. As you say, you, you were quite lucky that you fell into the environment agency. Were you particularly interested in the environment at the time? Yeah, I definitely had an interest in it. I think there's a couple of things I knew by this point, and this is like, you know, very early on in my career. But whilst I'd been studying, I'd also been waitressing. So I'd been waitressing for five years. And I had got extremely good at that extremely quickly. And I'd done other jobs and I fell into them and got extremely good at them extremely quickly. So I think I had this confidence that, I didn't know what subject I wanted to do, but I knew there were some things I enjoyed about a role, things like working in the public, problem solving, and having constant deadlines or being under pressure. Those were the things that I really enjoyed. So even though I hadn't found my fit yet, I started to understand what I liked about a job. With the environment, I saw that there was a way that perhaps I could use, I don't know, my strengths and try and improve the world for the better. And I, at that point, had also worked out that I liked working for the public sector, that I liked to give all I had to essentially a civil service. I think I'd worked that out by that point. The idea that you'd worked that out is really impressive because it's only now you say that, but I think about the fact that I've always enjoyed talking to people. And that's one of the things that defines me and my job now is this enjoyment of talking to people. I'd never put that together as, as something that you could possibly say would be useful in directing your career. But as you say it now, it makes perfect sense. I'm amazed that you'd worked it out that, at that age. Um, so something that I worked out much, much later, so far more recently, is doing a very, very basic straw poll of friends that I have who are successful, almost every successful person that I know was doing that basic job when they were 15 or as soon as the ability to work. They were working in hairdressers, they were working in card shops or cinemas or restaurants or whatever it is. And there was this work ethic that perhaps they had and not minding to make the teas and clean the bin. And I, I think that's something that's quite important actually yeah no I agree I strongly agree and that gives you a certain perspective on the world okay so you started the environment agency and that's where I met you the environment agency is the environmental regulator for England and it does a lot of work on flooding and it also does work on all sorts of other things and the cleanliness and the availability of water that was your area wasn't it that was the last area I worked on. So I had gone around the economics piece. So I'd been, I started off as a flood risk economist. 
not long after I was working with this area manager who I said had given me the economist every week, one of my objectives would be to find out who the economics team were. And after doing that and expressing my interest, I landed an assistant economist post working in the Thames Barrier. And it was an absolutely fascinating project. It was called Thames Estuary 2100. And basically, I had got the, the, the flood maps and there was loads of scenarios. And I was counting stuff that was getting flooded and I was putting an economic value to it. So I'd be looking at Monument Tube Station, for example, and saying, okay, what value can I put on Monument? And that was something I did for a while until I got better at it. I became a reviewer. And I suppose one of the last points of my journey in flood economics was I was overseeing as part of this large project review group, other people's economics. I did some work in water quality then for a while. I think I did almost all of the parts of the environment agency economics, except for waste. And we can just have a bit of a laugh about how much I didn't want to become a rubbish economist. But <laughs> yeah, I think that was basically the last place I could go before I'd run out of challenges, I suppose. That's interesting. So you started off as a PA and then you managed to get into the assistant economist role. You joined this organisation, but you weren't doing the job necessarily that you wanted to do. But once you're inside, I don't know whether it's like this for all organisations that are very large, but certainly I know in the Environment Agency, once you're inside, it's easy to move around. And and there are so many different jobs that you can do inside this one organisation. So there's something interesting there. But also, I think just to tell people a bit more about what you were doing, the idea that you're essentially, you're looking out to the year 2100, and presumably this was in the noughties, the 2000s. So you're looking 100 years ahead, and you're trying to work out what is going to get flooded in London with climate change and 100 years worth of technological development and building. Where do you even start with something like that? It was absolutely amazing. And I don't think I really knew how incredible it was. So what was recommended in the end was a barrier further down in Tilbury. And the amount of planning I realised would go on before this was built, I figured I'd, I'd probably be 60 years old before I'd maybe see the first brick being laid. And would it be finished in my lifetime? I'm not sure. I think that was the first thing that made me think, wow. The second thing that made me think, wow, was we finished the project and there was this big launch party out in Westminster and really enjoyed myself. There was lots of guests and and there's this one chap that's causing a lot of interest. And I was so young and naive. I said, who's that? Oh, that's David Attenborough. Oh, who's David Attenborough? <laughs> so David Attenborough was at the launch event of this Thames Estuary 2100. And me being very unworldly at the time, had no idea who he is. And now I just, it hurts my heart to think that because he is obviously such a hero. But at the time I was, I think I was 21 years old. So what would I know? Yeah. That is really impressive. So the other thing that struck me when you were talking there was was how much you pinged around inside the organisation because 
listeners won't know, but certainly for a long time, the economists in the Environment Agency kind of stuck to one thing. You had your flood experts and you had your waste experts and you had your water quality experts, and they all did this particular brand of economics. And it was all far too complicated for anybody else to understand. So nobody ever really moved around. And I'm interested that in, what, the five years you were in the Environment Agency, you managed to do almost everything. Was that a conscious choice? I suppose after the Thames Estuary 2100 job, which was a task and finish job, obviously, I then got recruited as the regional economist. And that was a bit unusual because it wasn't actually in the economics team in the central department. It was out in a region. And so I had to do everything in that role. And, and I would go to the head office economist whenever I needed to work with them. So, for example, I got involved in some planning issues, which I found really, really interesting, about planning gain and about community infrastructure levy. And I got pulled into another task and finish group, and it was there that we negotiated a community infrastructure levy for the Portsmouth and Southampton flood defences. Can you tell me, sorry, what's, what's the community infrastructure levy? Yeah, so I was just... I was just going to go go into that because I realise it's probably quite an unknown thing. But essentially, when developers go along and develop a piece of land, sometimes the council asks them to contribute to local infrastructure via something they call a Section 106. But sometimes they ask them to contribute through a community infrastructure levy. And that's basically a fund. It's almost like a savings account where a developer puts in some money, it might be £100 per square metre of their development, and that goes to pay for a variety of things in the local economy. So it might be schools, hospitals, playgrounds, roads, and in our case that we were dealing with was flood defences. And there was a fantastic development in particular down in Southampton, which a lot of people down there will know. And and they had some really interesting flood defences there that were paid for by this community infrastructure level. So again, that's not quite the kind of traditional route in economics, is it? The first time I met you, you were giving a training course. One thing that struck me about you straight away was a couple of things. The first one was that I could understand what you were saying, even though you were talking about economics, because at that time I wasn't an economist. And the second thing was this real enthusiasm that you had for educating other people on economics and again that is not something that back in the day there was this real sense that economics it's like the priesthood in latin you deliberately keep it difficult because then other people can't do it and so you end up as this gatekeeper to this knowledge and when we started one of the things that bothered me one of the reasons i became an economist was because it it annoyed me that, that economists could kind of come up with these this flowery language that I couldn't penetrate. And, I, and as a result, I couldn't argue against them. And yet when you explained it, it seemed just common sense. How did that go down with some of the other economists? That's a really good question. You're absolutely right. And I think even before your time coming into the team, I do remember doing a presentation about the training that we needed to do. And it was really looked down upon. But the thing is, I've been working with non-economists that entire time in Thames Estuary 2100 as the regional economist in the southeast. And I work with a lot of engineers and engineers make excellent economists. They get it. They weigh things up very mathematically. 
And I know that you couldn't have an economist doing all the work that was needed to do on economics and flood risk. So we had to train people and they got it very well and they understood it. And as long as they had guidance, that made sense. And at the time, there was one called Project Appraisal Guidance, PAG, that then became the Flood and Coastal Erosion Risk Management Appraisal Guidance. And they were both extremely well written. So that just had the blueprint. And so it was very easy for me, who'd been working years in that area, to say, well, we can do the same thing for other areas. And I was just, I was just passionate because I'd seen it being done. And I think you're absolutely right. Some people are extremely cautious of allowing the secrets of economics to go out to other people. But I just don't think it's necessary because so many people from different disciplines bring so much to the conversation. I mean, in that case, with the Water Framework Directive, I could not do all of the economics that was required. The only thing I could do is create some easy as possible spreadsheet and get people to understand what they were doing with the spreadsheet, why they were doing it, and just help them do their jobs. And I think that's that's been really, I suppose that was really important in the Environment Agency. And I probably actually would have stayed in that Water Framework Directive team for a long time doing that exact job teaching other people but I suppose it didn't go that way and because it was a task and finish group we finished the job I suppose. So after the Environment Agency you know thinking about you'd left the Environment Agency and you'd moved on to some of the consultancies the environmental consultancies that are in the UK and especially around London what prompted you to because you said you liked the civil service you enjoyed that so what prompted you to leave? I think the problem that I had was that I'd been in the same organization since I was 21. And, you know, and you five were years later. I think I was there for five or six years. So I guess I must have been 26, 27. Let's just say 26 for argument's sake. And I have had, you know, I have got, I still think I've got a very young face, or I like to think I've got a very young face. You have. So I I think that some people didn't necessarily take me quite as seriously because they might have seen one of my first presentations, which wasn't so good, or some of the outputs I did when I was still a learning economist, whereas I had clearly moved on at that point. And, Mm. you know, I was interested in things like management and things like that. And a colleague of mine who was in the economics team at the time, but then moved on afterwards, said that in order for you to reach management you almost have to leave and then come back so that was where I was at the last area to go in to was waste like I said before um and yeah I I just I just felt that that kind of became my only option Mm. so there's definitely a push there not wanting to be a rubbish economist Although I'd, I've done waste economics and it's fascinating, I have to say. There's all sorts of stuff around that. But so, yeah, you, you wanted to kind of start again in a way that if you start in the, the idea was that if you went to another organisation, people would would not have known the 21 year old Nicole. They'd be looking at the 26 year old Nicole who'd been brought in to do this particular job and had all these years of experience at the agency. Is that have I got the idea right? Yeah, um, exactly that. And I think the other thing to add there is that in the Environment Agency, the phrase private sector experience was actually key. 
and I'd heard it several times, it was a bit like, well, you seem to know what you're doing. However, you haven't got any private sector experience. And so I thought, well, let's go out there and get it. And I must admit, I didn't really enjoy my time at consultancy. It was, they, I felt like in the consultancy, a lot of particularly junior staff were quite exploited. Um, They were paid very low wages. They were promised promotions that they generally never got. And the amount of hours that I was doing was a hell of a lot. The projects were really varied, but I didn't feel that there was much finish in the task and finish. You'd get to a point and hand it over and then you wouldn't see it again. So, but I, I felt like I needed to see that to know it. And then I felt very comfortable when I came back into public sector and the job that I'm working in now I've got projects where I'm looking five years into the future and I really enjoy that but the consultancy was just too fast too quick and too 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 many short projects I remember when you because we stayed in touch and you were saying I'm going to St Helena all I knew about it as I imagine most people if they've ever heard of it at all know, is that that's where Napoleon ended up but I didn't know where it was. And then you explained where it was. And then you explained that it was five days by ship on a mail carrier. So I have to say, I imagined you'd be like sleeping on coal in the engine room or something. I really, I was just like, what is she doing? This is madness. And because you had your fiance Reese at the time and he wasn't going with you, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. So where on earth did it come from? Why? I can make that a really short question. Why? Well, looking for jobs, as you, as anybody does when they want a new job. And this job starts with, do you want to work on a subtropical island? Just the word tropical just had me. And I thought, and I, I remember Reese was cooking dinner at the time. I said, hey, Reese. so there's this job on this remote island in the middle of nowhere and they're looking for an economist should I apply obviously won't get it (laughs) and he said as he was frying the stir fry in the wok yeah go on why not so it kind of started off as a bit of a joke kind of like a yeah all right as if you'll kind of get it type thing and I got an interview and I got on really well with the interview panel and one thing was slightly suspicious about the job, actually. It was that the, the job required a lot of experience on a lot of things. So they wanted you to know tax, cost-benefit analysis, pensions, the whole works. And yet the wage wasn't huge. And so I, I just did some calculations in my brain. I said, like, who's going to go for this? Because the only person who's got this type of experience is maybe in their 60s but then they've probably got the experience in one department but it's unlikely they have it in all but why would they go for that amount of money so the money was right for me but just the level of experience that you know I was struggling with so I applied for it and of course everyone was in the same boat as me but you know for one reason or another and of course I'm not the panel so I don't know but they they offered me the job and I told Reese over dinner whilst his mum and dad were down we were living in Sussex at the time so we went to a really nice dinner to celebrate the retirement of his his father and you know I said oh so I got that job and Reese's mouth just opened and stayed open 
for a long time and he didn't say anything to the point that it got so awkward that his mum said, shall we leave you two alone? Um, But he, so I, I strongly believe that in every relationship there tends to be quite a flighty, almost creative, a bit like slightly mad character. And then there tends to be the kind of risk averse, stable, have you thought about this kind of character? And I talk about this, I, I call it the, the rock and kite theory. So, and, you know, you, you might be in the pub and a kite will be like, let's have another one, let's go, you know, da, da, da. And the rock will be like, maybe we've had enough and should we go home now? So there's me, the ultimate kite, saying, hey, I've got a job on a subtropical island in the middle of nowhere, it takes five days to get to by boat, what do you think? And there's my hu- um, husband-to-be, who's a rock. And he's just finished his flood engineering postgraduate certificate. And it was just so much for him to process. So the only way we were going to do it is for him to have an entire year to process it and for me to go off and start the job. And he would join me later. (laughs) I don't even know what to say. I don't think I'd have the guts to do what you've done. It's so big. It's such a huge change. So, okay, so we, let, let's say I've managed to get past hurdle one. Let's say I've actually applied for this job. What did you think about the idea that, for example, you wouldn't know anybody there? You'd have to make an entirely new set of friends. At the time, was there, was there internet available on the island then when you moved over? There was, and it has got better. But at this time, when I looked on Google Maps... I could see that there was a bank, a shop, and a nightclub. I mean, the last bit I was pretty keen on. What more do you need, right? Exactly. I like to go out for a dance. So there really wasn't much, but there was a very good blog at the time by a guy who'd gone as a partner to, I think she was a marine teacher or something like that. And he'd spent his spare time learning photography his name was Paul Tyson and actually as soon as I got there I ended up buying one of his incredible photos that I've got on my wall at the moment and I read up everything that they had said and, and actually to be fair they had come at a time when most expatriates were put in a certain place and there were certain things that traditionally those expats would do like not very long after I turned up, there was this excitement about the airport. And so a lot more things opened. So there were a couple of restaurants previously, but you had to pre-book and you had to dial up and pre-order as well. There was probably one or two restaurants. There was a fish place called Anne's Place and um, a Chinese place that you could just kind of walk in more or less. But that was pretty much it. There were a couple of pubs as well. But after the airport was being prepared, we had a new hotel called Mantis that was open that did really nice meals. I'm talking really nice, you know, hotel-style meals. There was another restaurant called Rosie's that started up, one called Bertrand's that did like almost, it was kind of a cross between fine dining and maybe like a pub feel. There was taxis that started being available. I mean, when I first arrived, you had to pre-book a taxi. But after about a year or so, you could roll out of the nightclub at the end of the night and actually get into a taxi without pre-booking it, which was huge. 
So there was loads more takeaways. So things really did happen. And even, even when I first arrived, people hardly had mobile phones. So for actually for the first two years, I didn't bother with a local SIM card. And, you know, we just used email and the home phone. And I, that sounds strange, but I mean, put it this way. One morning I didn't turn up for work because I had this tooth infection and I went down to the dentist and they sorted it out. So I, t- so I came in about um, 10.30 and I said to my boss, oh, sorry, Paul, I've been down the dentist. And he said, yeah, 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 I know. I was worried when you didn't come in. So I rang the hospital and they told me you were there. It's a different world, but it's become a lot more normal now. It's a lot easier for people coming now than it was then. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it sounds it. When did you move over? What what year was that? So it was the end of 2016. Like you said before, the airport opened towards the end of 2017. Mm. You, you seem to, you have to be across so many things. If you're the chief economist on a small island... It's still people, right? There's still all the normal stuff. There's health, there's education, there's transport, there's the environment, and there's pensions, there's tax. How on earth do you keep across all of that? What, what, do, you, what do you do? The planning at the beginning of the year is pretty intense. There is more than one of us now. So we have recruited senior economists, and I also have an assistant economist at the moment, which is great but before I hadn't. And we look towards the year and we say, right, what do we need to do? So my colleague, she's working on a minimum wage policy. Previously, we updated minimum wage year by year, but we've decided actually to aim for something and make a a proper good go of it, which is now we've got the resource, we're able to do it. You're absolutely right. On my portfolio, I've got things like company registry. I've got telecommunications because the island's getting a new fiber optic cable coming this year and then it's going to be live next year. I'm really trying to push exports at the moment. So there's a lot of work around the fisheries, quite a bit of work to do with coffee. And we're selling things like our ship registry abroad. But there's just a lot going on. But it's not that I don't have colleagues. We all work together. And I just happen to be in a really good dynamic team where people just don't waffle. I mean, it's just incredible the length of the meetings in St. Helena compared to the length of the meetings in UK. If we can get in a meeting, talk about it and get out in 10 minutes, we will do. And every time we have a call with our our UK colleagues, there's just a lot of pre-waffle. How's everyone going? Is it okay? Can you hear us now? Blah, blah, blah. Let's go through the minutes from, you know, we just don't have time for that. We have to be quick. We have to make decisions. We certainly don't have time to go around the houses and push it up to the highest management possible. We just have to make decisions and get on with it. And, and that's basically how you manage. It's just very exciting. And I think that's probably one of the reasons I would really struggle coming back to the UK because I've got so much autonomy here and so much of a diverse portfolio of what I'm working on. So that will probably be the downfall of this job. In, in that when I when I have to leave it. Right. I, I had a listen to your podcast, An Irish Girl and an English Girl walk, walk Into a Bar, and I loved it. I was uh, making dinner, just listening to you two chatting away, and it was really nice. It was, it was like having two friends just chatting whilst you're cooking dinner. And one of the things uh, that you were talking about there was just what a restless person you seem to be you know the 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 amount of traveling that you've done the amount of places you've been to on your own as well do you see yourself 
carry on with that restlessness, do you think? It's really interesting. So I, I think I counted the number of countries I'd been to, and I was on somewhere between 90 and 95, and I can't remember. Um, and I was looking at that because I was thinking, oh, should I become part of this century club that exists? Um, but anyway, the irony of that is because I'm in St. Helena, I can't do that much traveling whilst I'm here, except for the one time a year that I get off, or maybe two times a year. Obviously not now because of the pandemic. But this island really satisfies me. There's so much nature here. There's people who are here for a long time, but also transient people as well. And I find that really interesting. So new people tend to be bombarded with the questions. People want to befriend them, find out what's happening in the real world. That sounds really <laughs> small worldish, but it's true. It's, it's kind of true how it is. And, and yeah, it really satisfies me. I mean, the reason I will leave will be because I hope the economy will get to a point where you'll need someone who's more experienced in a certain area. So, you know, my colleague, the financial secretary, he really wants to see financial services doing well here. And if they do do well, you would need a chief economist who specializes in that. I'm not sure that's ideal for the island, but I've got my own thoughts about that. I prefer to look on things in terms of the digital side of things. I think this is a great place for digital nomads to live so people can take their job, jobs anywhere. We've got earth stations that will come here and maybe more digital businesses. But again, if that really drives the economy, then you probably need a chief economist who's really experienced in that and can deal with things like satellite launches, um, earth stations, Bitcoin and all that kind of thing. What's an earth station? <laughs> it's basically a massive satellite dish or a small one actually there's some that are the size of a playing card that basically gets information from the satellites that go around the earth and the reason we're interested in them and they're interested in us is because there's nothing around us apart from sea for example if you've got a satellite going over west africa taking pictures for some it takes them all the way around till they're in new zealand to upload those pictures to the web through a station so you know we're a good location for that I mean I'll be here as long as I'm useful and then maybe I won't be useful anymore but I'll know when to move on <laughs> wow I dread to imagine a time when I won't be useful in my current job but you seem perfectly comfortable with the idea yeah we're not perfect at everything and if we do stay in one job it's hard for us to learn new things unless we have a mentor I mean I would really like to go to another British overseas territory and, and be an economist there for a short amount of time and then come back and apply what I've learned whether or not I get the opportunity I don't know you must have like the highest density of economists like the highest rate of economists per person of population per head of population in the world you've oh. the, you've got there's three of you four and a half thousand people that's like one in every thousand, one in every 1,200 people is an economist on that island. Oh. Sounds like heaven. Well, our, our assistant is just a school leaver for now, but we're trying to persuade her to do a degree in economics. So that's hopefully our legacy will be when Marcella goes away and comes back and does my job one, one day. But yeah, you say that, although we have a bit of a laugh because my colleague Amanda, the senior economist at the moment, she 
um, used to work for the EPA in America, funny enough. She was saying that on air quality economics alone, they probably had 12 economists. And yet we're over here doing pensions, minimum wage, trade, investment, air quality, tax. You know, <laughs> it's just the density maybe, but we can do with more. Fair enough. So one of the things I wanted to kind of finish off on, the final question was, how do you judge success? What would you consider success to be? To, to me, it's not that work related. Because I've been thinking about this a little today, you know, knowing about going on this podcast. And I'm always of the belief that you, you work to live rather than live to work. And I'm an incredibly hard worker and I do the hours and da 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 da. But at the end of the day, I am miserable if all I do is work. I need to have joy in my life. I need to have creativity. And that's something that often an economics job doesn't necessarily give you. I need to be fit and healthy. I need to have balance. So I think for, for me, success is actually being able to do all those things in balance and also being okay when you you don't have all the time in the world to do everything that you want to do. I just went through two weeks of quarantine because I went to the UK for a while and then I came back to St. Lena. And one thing that struck me is even with 14 days of technically nothing to do, I still couldn't do all the hobbies that I had in my head that I was going to do. I wanted to run a book I wanted to learn how to play a bit of an instrument I, I wanted to learn more Dutch I wanted to do Pilates I wanted to do a walk every day I wanted to listen to a podcast and I just think what the hell am I doing like I'm giving myself too high expectations so I, I feel like we need to just lower our ex- expectations and just say actually I'm doing all right I fed myself I also think success is living to your values and my values are like pretty simple. I always think if if I think about if is something right or wrong, I say, well, if everyone did did it, would that be like a good world to live in? So generally, if I feel like I'm generally in the most part doing the right thing, then I'm I'm generally fine with that. Mm. Although I say that I could be fitter, stronger, <laughs> a better cook, and all of those things, but never mind. Yeah. That's a bit rambling. No, not at all. It it, it strikes a chord because I don't know whether you picked up on this in the UK at all, but there's definitely been... So there's this idea that with the pandemic, we're not all in the same boat. We're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats. And certainly towards the beginning and maybe even still now, there's a certain amount of, I guess I'd call it virtue signalling, something like that, where people are saying... I've just learned a new language or, uh, yeah, here's me doing my amazing new yoga move. Whereas other people are, don't have a job, have children in a small flat who they're trying to homeschool and they're being forced to work in, you know, a warehouse or, or whatever, whatever it might be. And it just, just struck me what you were saying there, this idea of how do you manage your expectations? How do you keep them high enough to, to push you along, but not so high that, that inevitably you fail to meet them. 
it's very difficult because if you set them too low well then you don't drive yourself you, you you don't push yourself forward but if you set them too high and you fail or you see other people apparently reaching those those heights then you just give up well how do you set your what what do you think's a reasonable um, you know a reasonable expectation to put on yourself how do you decide whether something's too far a step too far see this is where i cheat a little bit because one thing i noticed after i'd first been here in st helena is when i went back to london i was bombarded with marketing that i never see in st helena so lots of people had the new apple watch at the time there were billboards with people taking amazing photos on their smartphone, being in places like Rio de Janeiro. There were billboards about maybe you want to do this evening course. There were fashion information or like photographs. And immediately within the space of 10 minutes, it basically made me feel that I wasn't clever enough. I wasn't fashionable enough. I didn't have the latest gadgets. I wasn't hanging out in Rio de Janeiro with my friends, with the sunset. And it just felt made me feel like rubbish. And I looked across the, the people in the tube and they looked fantastic in their clothes and their watches and their hair and their makeup, nails, all of that. But their faces just weren't that happy. And I suppose... Being in St. Lino, I've a little bit stepped away from that, but it makes it very easy being here. I mean, the other thing is that there isn't that treadmill that I noticed in my 30s in, the, uh, in the UK even, which was that you have a girlfriend or boyfriend, then you get married, and then you have your kids and stuff like that. And that treadmill isn't here. It's just completely changed the way that I base myself I, I just don't have benchmarks like I did in the UK. And I think that's helped me to learn that actually who I am and what I do is absolutely fine, even though I don't have the latest Apple Watch. But I'm cheating because I really stepped out of that. But it's very hard for you guys who put on the TV and see all that stuff. It's almost impossible. I don't know how you do it, honestly. I guess you just got to check yourself and you're thinking, why do I feel crap? It's because I'm wearing the same jog pants. So who cares? I'm glad you said that because I am, in fact, wearing the same jogging pants. <laughs> <laughs> On that savoury note, we can we can maybe finish there. Just want to say thanks so much. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, and you too. And I absolutely can't wait to hear your other podcasts. They're going to be really interesting. It's been fun just just hearing your thoughts, really, and, and hearing about all that you've been you've been up to. It's been great. Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed episode two and particularly the sound of an economist trying and failing to divide 4,500 by three. It was great to speak to Nicole from her island paradise and huge thanks to her for sparing the time. Thanks also to Anna Gunn at McGunn Media for her editing support. In fact, you'll be hearing from Anna herself in the next episode. To Julian Holmes for his superb cover artwork and to Acast for hosting. Remember, if you think your life could add some flavour to Serendipity Soup, then email me at soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com.
Thanks for listening, and see you soon for another serving.